Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oh, well, it's been an interesting couple of weeks since we were last on. Uh, We've got a new president of the United States of America. We've got a couple more losses on my uh, Niners win-loss column. Uh, Only one more win for the Cowboys because I believe they had a bye week tossed in there. So so one win and one time to rest up. Um, But it is good to be back. Actually, uh, yeah, two weeks. Two weeks because we were going to be on last week if we had stayed on schedule uh, due to the holidays. Obviously, this month we uh, pushed back another week and switched it up. But good to be back on the air. Uh, In honor of Johnny Carson or Ed McMahon, I'll say you are correct, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good to be good to be back. We've got a juicy show. Uh, lined up for for today for all you guys and this is definitely uh we'll say sticking with the current times or the current trends although and we'll get into it more as as we get into it but uh, the topic has been around for for several years but only now kind of starting to be the uh the in vogue topic if you will of of treatment uh today and we are purposely Welcome to Roach on Recovery, by the way. 646-564-9909 is the number. We are purposely not live streaming our show into the treatment centers today because of the topic. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And we'll get a little bit into that, uh, why that is when we get to the topic. Absolutely. I suppose we'll we'll work through our traditional start here. I'm not as excited about it as I used so the, to be. The first thing I notice is that, uh, oh, once again, my goodness, I hope my fifth grade teacher is not reading this stuff because my spelling, which used to be 100% on point, <laughs> is this is what you're just moving too fast. That's all it is because how, how, how I can misspell the word addiction is just unbelievable. Uh, well, you know what happens I'm, I'm just, when I get home tonight. I have to give myself a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, I'd say it happens to the best of us, but I I won't throw myself into that category. That's just you. <laughs> hmm. 
Shut up. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yes, you, my my man, must be on top of the mountain, the proverbial mountain that NFL fans get to stand on and shout from when uh, – what is it now? I think everyone's lost two except for them now. Yeah, best record in the NFL. Your thoughts? I will make it short and sweet. <laughs> we are 8-1, and one, best record in the league. However, nothing has been won yet. Oh, very well said. Very well stated. There's still the cold of November and December to be played. When the real football happens, That's right. many would so, say. Yeah, well... um. I haven't got the cold back east, not the cold out here. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I haven't gotten I haven't got much to say for my side of the fence as far as our area here and our our San Francisco Forty Niners. Other than uh, I did see you you guys are on the clock. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, on CSN last night, the uh, the local ESPN, if you will. Uh, yeah, they were already looking at maybe the top five uh, players talent-wise in the draft. That's what that's what we have to look forward right. to. Yes, indeed. But other than that, not much to say. I will ask you, though, real quick, because the question has to be asked. Um, although there is much football yet to be played, all things considered with what you've seen, barring significant injury, your chances on uh, navigating the NFC and potentially to a title? I actually do not want them but I think it might be inevitable if they continue to play this way. I don't want them to get a uh, first round bye. Okay. You I want to keep them, the momentum I going. Keep the momentum going. Keep them playing. And as a matter of fact, I like it better when they go on the road. Hmm. So let's say if they are fortunate enough to make it to the NFC Championship game, I wouldn't mind them going up to Seattle. Okay. What is your uh, less they, distraction young team? What is I your think, reason for that? I think that? they just thrive. In in the road environment, when they have to rally together, it. and there's something to be said about that. I, I've heard a certain coach's takes on they like the focus their team has when they're on the road versus at home. Mm-hmm. You don't have the distractions of family and the crowd and the comfortability, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You you have to kind of have a serious demeanor and an A game about you. It, it makes you play with an edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and funny enough that this is the information you get from the insiders like coaches that they'll say in some regards, this uh, is how they feel about it. You also statistically speaking, it just the, the argument doesn't hold weight because the statistics show, especially in the playoffs, the home team has a, a greater percentage of winning those games, but, but good it's te- all relative. Good teams that have, you know, good, running games and all that stuff mm-hmm. travels well. Oh yeah. Defense, defense and defense yeah. in the run game travel. Yep. So that's that. That's I that. Will say nothing about my Knicks right now. <laughs> I have not been following them closely. Okay. Maybe at the next show, next, our next show, I'll give an update as to what I think and what I feel about them. I think I sent you a little highlight. There was a, there was a highlight there in game two. Or... Yes, you did send me a low light <laughs> game three of the season, but we may need to find some NBA music. Uh, because that's something I'd look forward to dropping at this point. But anywho, uh, I guess real quickly on the NBA, have you watched any of the Warriors games or seen highlights? I watched a little bit, a, a little bit of the Warrior Thunder game because of the storyline. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, but after after the second quarter, it was a blowout, so I lost interest. Okay, I was just gonna because you played basketball yourself and mm-hmm. you've followed the sport for a long time. 
going to ask your opinion on how you see, obviously, One Kevin. Second. I played at a high level. Very, yes. Go ahead. Yes, indeed. Um, they say chemistry is very important in basketball, maybe more so than any of the other sports, because you only got five guys on the court. And uh, how you, you know, in your own analysis, have seen how they're how it's they're being able to gel with your quote unquote added superstar, you know, and superstars having to play together. It requires one person to be egoless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And from just where I sit, from a distance, not really paying attention too much, it sure. appears that the person that has actually taken the back seat for now is Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that, is, that is kind of what it looks like. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, there's today in sports, yep. if you will. Um, no news. No no breaking news. Should, I mean, should we share? Do we share the, the news that is this show and why this is significant or special? Yes. Let's share it. Um, today, uh, and you guys will take cues from the music drops that we have later on, but it is uh, the host filled me in that today is the official second anniversary of our back backyard operation here our ocg radio yep and that's the uh, formal launch not uh, the emergency launch from the monsignor <laughs> show but right. the formal launch yes exactly so that's uh <clears throat> it doesn't feel like two years to me yep but that's how long it's been so it's good stuff we're still going strong mm-hmm. still got a a lot of interest from the outside. The archive listens continue to pile up. Uh, one thing that I have noticed, uh, we have some new staff on on site here, and many of them have approached me and told me about different podcasts that they had listened to mm-hmm. and other people taking an interest in it. So we're still, still moving stuff. strong. And I'll add on a personal note, and maybe we'll get into it at some on some show in the future. I think we promised this a year or so ago and still haven't done it, but <laughs> today today's date, not the day, but the date is the I think the thirty what would it be, the thirty second? Nineteen eighty four to now. Okay, what yeah. Would that be? Yeah. Uh huh. You're you're correct, my friend, thirty second. Okay. Uh anniversary of the day. So I saw my wife. The day, the day you crossed paths. Paths. Crossed paths. Right. Oh man, yeah, that is a story. Yeah, two years in, and who knows how long you'll push that back, but we'll have yeah. to hold you to <laughs> sharing that story at some point. Um, my children uh, outed us in terms oh, of we. saying, you know, that there's a there's this story to actually how they met, and now I've been committed to telling it in in another media uh source yeah sure uh so i said all right i'll tell it but i'll only tell it on the anniversary of the day so okay i'll be writing it tonight there you go uh and this would be a little impromptu but we might be able to throw it in before the topic up to you though Mm -hmm. do we share with the people now that it's the second anniversary i don't know if we've ever shared with the listeners out there or if it's in the archives how uh, this show came to be, the, how it was conceptualized. I remember where, and I mean, I can't say how long you'd been thinking about it prior to the conversation. Well, well, I'll, but let you, I'll let you go. 
So uh, don't judge the host, but the man's standard or bar for restaurants isn't as high as some others. So, <laughs> so we were eating lunch at his one of his favorite restaurants, uh, Applebee's, everybody's neighborhood restaurant. And uh, I believe he was treating that only day. because I like the brownie bite. Okay, <laughs> I believe uh, he was due to treat for lunch that day because this was in the the glory years of Jim Harbaugh and the Forty ers Because we have our little cowboy Forty ers chum chums, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Forty ers had earned me a lunch, and so we were at Applebee's having lunch and. Uh, uh, the host had mentioned to me he'd been thinking about doing a radio show, something that we could put out there in the community in kind of a way, um, obviously being being high up in the chain, being in the position that he's in in the program, doesn't really have the opportunity to directly give back sometimes in the way he'd like to directly give back because this is kind of the passion that drove him to be in this field in the first place. And this was going to um, provide like a conduit, so to speak, for him to be able to still directly touch addicts, either through the topic of the day or through our recovery support time segment. And um, as as crazy as it was, and maybe as, uh, in hindsight, uh, uh, a dive into the deep end, so to speak, I went ahead and uh, said, Oh man, what is a radio show without a co-host, man? Every <laughs> every radio show has a producer and a call screener and a co-host. And mm-hmm. long story short, we uh, we said, well, let's give it a trial, and we have shared with you guys the the horrors of the the, tri- <laughs> the trials before we could get up and running. Um, but yeah, that's that's how it came to be over a little lunch at Applebee's, and here we are two years later, still coming strong. Still hoping that the the connection to the web stays on for, <laughs> right? the, for the two hours. Still, yeah, still with the anxiety from some of the trials and tribulations we went through to get to this point. But nevertheless, here we are. Good stuff. <clears throat> um, ready for our topic? Let's hit them with it. Topic of the day, controversy. So most people who are up on it, know it as MAT, medication-assisted treatment. Hence our title, MAT, a new approach towards treatment. And, you know, this didn't start yesterday. Um, If I recall correctly, when it first came to the fore locally where we are, very late 90s, early 2000s, somewhere in that time range. Um, And it started really about people being in, because most of the residential programs locally, I can't speak for anywhere else. um, If you wanted to come into the program, but you were on methadone, let's say, use that as an example, Mm -hmm. um, you had to taper off of methadone before you can come in. you know, with the thinking being, the position being that we did not want anyone under the influence of anything right? in the residential right. environment. Uh, we wanted it to be, and as it has historically been labeled, maybe incorrectly, but this is the term that has been used, a drug-free environment. And they didn't only mean, you know, illicit drug-free environment to a certain extent they meant licit right. drug-free environment also 
Um, what's kind of funny about that is because even when I recall being at Swan Lake as a resident and the nurse back there, Carol, I do not remember her last name, so forgive me, um, who as a resident I thought was a mean individual, turned out to be a very nice woman. Okay, when I met her as a staff person, because okay? <laughs> right. I, I found out the method to her madness, but um, it was her goal to make sure that people did not rely on medication to deal with whatever was going on with them in treatment. Oh, I have a headache, sure. or I have this, I have that. I went to the medication office one time because I had a headache. She asked me if I smoked. I said no. She said, well, you drink eight glasses of water and get the hell out of my office. There was. And... Ever since then, not that I did before, but ever since then, I have never taken a headache pill anytime. I don't suffer from headaches anyway, but if one happened to have, I would just lie down and kind of rest it off. <laughs> right. So right. she kind of fixed me for, for life. There you okay. go. <laughs> um, but she was tough with uh, uh, an agenda, but a, a, a positive agenda for the client behind it. Okay. Now, Obviously, if you really needed something and, you know, she would, as a, as a nurse, it was her duty to, you know what I mean? But she had to sift through who was being a dope fiend and who was really in need. Right. Okay. Right. And, and who, you know, you have to learn, you know, you get, you got a headache. No, you got to learn. You, there's other things you can do before you jump to the Tylenol or jump to the Advil or sure. jump to the Excedrin, et cetera. That was her thing. And I thank her for it. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. So good habits to this day. Yeah. So it wasn't just, you know, the, you know, the methanon, it was, you know, even over the counter stuff. So time moves on. And even though out here, out West here, heroin wasn't a big deal like it is back on the Eastern seaboard. Okay. Um, they still tracked IV drug users. Okay. You know, the, the feds required, and, and they still wanted the data on IV drug users. And in the big cities all over the country, so San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, you know, Philly, St. Louis, and Washington, D.C., you, I mean, you name all the big cities, heroin was still a problem, even though it wasn't making the news like it was back in the day, mm-hmm. it was still a big problem. And okay. as you know, when we had the adolescent program, there was a time where like it kind of started nudging up when adolescents were coming in. Hey, what drugs were you using? Heroin. What? what? You know, right. Right. We were shocked. You know what I mean? Um, You know, most of them were kind of snorting it, but on the rare occasion, yeah, I was injecting. I was like, Oh my goodness. You know, because, you know, you look at heroin, you think as a, you know, it's a grown folk. Yeah. That's an adult drug. (laughs) It's a grown folks drug. Right. right? So, More, you know, you got these long-term addicts, heroin addicts, um, and that were been on methadone, and have been really kind of excluded out of the residential treatment environment. And the powers that be may started making a move, <laughs> making their move to change that because hmm. they knew the stance of the residential programs was that was like an infiltration into the environment. Okay. Yeah. And as I wrote in my description, our topic description that, you know, there was this collective gasp 
you know, when when the when it was broached about, you know, the the county adopting a new medication policy. Right. Okay. And we were like, okay, so what does this mean? Because it it not only covered methadone, it wasn't known as medication assisted treatment back then. It was methadone, marijuana, because you know medical marijuana was legal in California since 1996. Okay. Okay. And we would always talk amongst ourselves, you know, program folk. Well, what if somebody came in to our residential program and said, well, I'm on, you know, I have a prescription for medical marijuana. Right. He said, can you imagine someone being out in the back area? <laughs> you know, right. You know, right. Going after med call, you know, with some smoking joint on the property. Mm-hmm. And we were like, no, that's not going to happen. And so eventually they worked their way around to, at some point they came, the pharmaceutical industry saw their opening and, you know, came yeah. up with Marinol. That's right. And so the policy became that no person could be discriminated against in terms of placement into a residential program because they were either on methadone, medical marijuana, or some other medication. Hmm. So that was the major shift. And of course, you kind of have no choice but to adopt that. But so you can just like, in theory, on paper adopt it, but then, wow, what do you do with the cultures change on that in terms of staff, Forget about clients for a minute, but just staff who, you know, you're used to, you know, operating in a certain certain way under a certain theory of thinking about how treatment is and the environment in, in the residential treatment program. So now, you know, if someone's, you know, seeking injury and they're on methadone and they're stable and they're not presenting any affect of being under the influence, quote unquote, you cannot, you know, stop them or say, or use that as a reason for, for, um, declining their, them admission. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So of course the concern was, well, what, what if people who are on methadone or on medical marijuana, what is their affect going to be in the program? Are they going to look like they're high? Yeah, right. You know? Are they going to be nodding out during yeah, groups exactly. and trigger? Yeah, exactly. And so we went through that. The programs went through that, and 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 there were times when that was the case, and 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 the communication with the methadone providers, you know, it took time to get to a point where there was an understanding of what the residential programs needed and required, and what the methadone providers needed and required and somehow find a happy medium of communication. Mm-hmm. Well, we're in 2016. We've, we've pretty much gotten there, but it wasn't, it wasn't an easy sailing back in 2000. Um, today still, I can count myself as one, okay, intellectually, okay, you always worry about the impact on the residential environment because anytime you take someone in that, and we're going to talk about some of these medications, the the, the main ones, <clears throat> that 
is engaged in medication-assisted treatment, that are they on that treatment in a manner that they're going to be able to fully function and participate in the residential environment, which is fast-paced, high-speed, high-functioning, on your toes, right? You know, yeah, nonstop, you know, intellectually stimulating and challenging, and the whole nine yards. You know, and are you going to be going in slow motion? You know what I mean, so, right? Methadone's been around. Let's see. Developed in 1937 by the Germans for their folk. Quite, <laughs> quite some time. On but the other side of the pond, we started using it here as a a medication in 1947. But it wasn't until 72 that it was started to be used as a substitute, a legal substitute for heroin. Okay. So people can get on methadone to get off heroin, and they looked. Remember, we talked about in one of our shows. We talked about that the whole thinking was. Being on heroin is associated with that all kinds of behavior and environment and so on and so forth. And if you can eliminate all of those secondary and corollary things, if they're on methadone, then you improve their life. So Mm -hmm. harm reduction. That's right. Okay. So that was the thinking. It's not new, the methadone, but it's it's not been a long time that you've had the mixture of the, the methadone treatment and the residential treatment combined, Com- right? Combined. Okay. The reality is folks need it. The, these medications are now available. And if we talked before about how, you know, we know that the pharmaceutical industry for good or worse, for, I mean, for better or worse um, is hard at work. <laughs> you know, working on medications to mm-hmm. assist people who are addicts of illicit drugs. Okay. And of course the, you know, the, the caveat is that usually what they come up with can also be addicting. Right. Yeah. You right. Know, you know what I mean? So um, they have yet to, I don't think come up with something that, kind of you, you reach that happy medium where it it helps address craving and withdrawal but also does not become a, you know, a, a yeah, it, to it, the person physically it dials in on or helps with the the physiological and or psychological pains that might come with withdrawal right but doesn't also give you that physical fuzzy the 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 feeling the the benefits or the positives that one would get while getting high on right, the drug of right. choice to get high right helping with the the negatives of coming down but not also fulfilling the craving so to and speak. this is the problem and the give and take with clients that are on methadone mm-hmm. by the way so that's one of the reasons folks why we're not live streaming this into the program because right one thing addicts are are very manipulative. Okay, and so some have Quite savvy. some have different agendas than 
actually getting into recovery. <laughs> right. And sometimes being on these medications are the agenda, not actually utilizing them as a as a you know a vehicle mm-hmm. to assist them in their recovery process. So, you know, we have to screen through that and you know weave through that and and and, and work with that. But um, we sure don't want to give anyone any ammunition to uh, excel in their manipulation. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Their path to getting whatever it is they need to get. What? I never heard of that drug. So we we mentioned Marinol, which is the pill form of medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. Another one, this is fairly recent, within the last five to seven years, Suboxone. Yeah. S-U-B-O-X-O-N-E. So this is a combo drug, which is, again, the same thing with methadone, opiate right. addiction. Mm-hmm. But it has a combination of buprenorphine, which is a synthetic opiate, mm-hmm. and naloxone, N-A-L-O-X-O-N-E, which is the blocker. So that's the one that's supposed to help. The, you know, block the receptor. Right, right. Okay. But the other one, unfortunately... Gives you a little taste. Is <laughs> <laughs> Just a little taste. So, again, uh, open to, if not carefully monitored... Right, open, and, right. And they make it very clear in all of the literature, open to misuse. You cannot be using painkillers and, mm-hmm. and other opiate you know, drugs while on this stuff. And so people have to be really be serious about their recovery and not trying to find, Oh, this has a little, uh, of the, uh, opium stuff <laughs> right? in a there. A little juice. A little juice in there. Yeah. So, and addict, a lot of addicts today, not that they didn't do it back in the day, but I'm just saying, you know, I mean, they'll do multiple stuff. Yeah. Not realizing the damage and, and, and near-death experiences they may be putting themselves in. Right, right. Okay, so that's Suboxone. Another one is um, Vivitrol. Mm-hmm. Okay, this one is primarily used for alcoholics, secondarily for opiate addicts. And I'm going to tell you an interesting thing about what they do in our county with the Vivitrol. It's very expensive. It's a, it's an injection, right? Isn't it like 11 or 1200 bucks a shot? Yep. 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 And our county has chosen to pay for it because they did a cost benefit analysis versus having people go to the emergency room Mm -hmm. suffering from alcohol induced whatever right okay that it's cheaper to pay for this shot and let them be on this rather than the ten thousand dollars it costs for emergency room visit right i don't know if that's what it costs i'm just saying it costs a whole lot more for them to go to the emergency room than the twelve hundred dollars for the shot but it's primarily to treat alcohol dependence and to prevent relapse on opioids so you have to detox from both if you're going to be on the Vivitrol. Now, with all of these, 
this was not the case with methadone. Okay, it is now coming into being the case mm-hmm. where now it is go- it is a requirement because it's not all of them a requirement, but what's being pushed now as a best practice is that if you're going to be on one of these medications, that you are also actively participating in a treatment program. Okay, yeah. Whether it be outpatient, intensive outpatient, it's a residential or whatever. It has to be happening simultaneously. Simultaneously. It's no longer going to be you just going to the clinic, getting your getting your fix, getting your juice, yeah, and going about your business. Okay? So if you're quote unquote a functioning addict and you are taking um, medication assisted treatment and you know you're working and what whatever the case you can still do those things okay but you have to participate in even low level treatment you know outpatient once a week or something like that sure okay <clears throat> which is extremely important i don't know what recent show we talked about or maybe i dreamed about it i don't know that we said you know a good you know a, a really good psychiatrist is one that would not prescribe you Medic. It was a show we did on depression, right? That we said that a good psychiatrist is one that's who right. That's right. Realizes that you have an issue with depression, would provide, uh, prescribe you an antidepressant, but can Along make it with, conditional yeah. that you receive counseling and/or therapy. That's right. Simultaneously. That's right. They're not just going to, you know, give you the medication and you're come, not just going to get back. your get well pill. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that can help tamper some of the you know, the negatives are the things that you're going through while you're working on addressing the, root. the core. Yeah. Yeah. The root. Same and same applies here. And so it's very close to being, um, within a year, I'll say that anyone that's going to be not the Marinol, um, but the other Suboxone, Vivitrol, Methadone, Anyone that's going to be using uh, in, involved in one of those treatment methods also has to simultaneously be involved in a treatment program. Now, people who are on methadone are quote unquote already considered to be involved in a treatment program because you do are you are required to go to counseling mm-hmm. at the methadone clinic twice a month minimum, I believe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but those are people who are outpatient. Okay. We're primarily talking residential. Residential, yeah. And the infiltration, if you will, of these this medica- this approach of treatment using medication into the residential environment um and the impact that, that has. So, from a staff perspective now, and you talked about this a little bit, it brings a whole new context of concern. <laughs> <laughs> into the environment because we don't know how different, you know, different people respond differently to different, uh, you know, medications. Yeah. And what effect that's going to have on their participation, their ability to um, function, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, there's been times when someone has come into the program, they've been on a very high dose of methadone. And they were, you know, they were nodding off and, and their affect was of someone who was under the influence. And we, you know, spoke with the methadone clinic and they tapered them down to a dose where their affect was appropriate. Right. Um, so as long as that's 
present um, that helps alleviate some of the concerns. Now, here's the dilemma, as my Sunday school teacher would pronounce it, the dilemma. Um, I don't know about it anywhere else in the country, but I know in California. Doctors have to go to a special training in order to be eligible to prescribe these medications, particular medications out of their offices, so to speak. And there is an extreme, an extreme shortage of doctors who are eligible prescribed for two reasons. One, maybe they don't, they don't want them to go with the required training. I think it's like a 16-hour, you know, two-day thing or I don't know, something like that. 16 to 24 hours. Mm-hmm. The other is even if you become eligible, they cap the number of prescribers you can have, the number of people, patients that you can be prescribing. So, oh, wow. Okay. So, and where we live locally here, we're almost maxed out in terms of the number of doctors and the number of patients. And so we have people on the waiting list for Vivitrol and Suboxone and okay. things like that because yeah. there's no doctors available. Sure. So it's not that they're the, the, the medications aren't available, but they've written the regulations for them so as usual, um, basically creating barriers. They always talk about we don't want we want to make sure there's no barriers for people accessing treatment, while they write regulations that create barriers. Right. The doc, you know the the number of patients that a doctor can be prescribing this specific medication, and what without realizing that not every single doctor that exists in a particular county is going to be saying, hey, yeah, I'll take this co- this training so I can become a prescriber. Right. Some want no part of it for you know their own philosophical reasons. They don't want any part of it. Sure. And others are like, I don't have the time to take these this three-day course or this two-day course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my, you know, is it how is it, it's not going to affect my financial situation any. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm content with doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I like to use the toll booth or like the bridge analogy. Mm-hmm. You know, you only have, you think about maybe the Golden Gate Bridge, there's only what, six or seven uh, pathways once you've crossed the bridge to exit, but you've got a flood of traffic. Mm-hmm. And so everything has to slow down there. And then once Dr. One or, or Toll One reaches its quota and turns the close sign yeah. on, Everyone's in that one lane, and that doctor's only got so many more, and mm-hmm. then eventually we're sitting on the bridge mm-hmm. waiting. It's this, it's a similar kind of traffic jam, if you will, because that's the problem. So <clears throat> one of the things they're looking at is in the, the close neighboring counties to us, are there you know, doctors that are available? But word on the street is that every doctor that is eligible is already maxed. Wouldn't be surprised. So that's, you know, unfortunate. And hopefully they'll, because hopefully that puts pressure on the system to lift whatever that restriction Mm -hmm. is that caps the number of patients they can have and realize that it's silly. It doesn't make any sense. Um, 
and most importantly, using their language, is not in the best interest of the client. Yeah. It's not in the best interest of the client. They need the medication, but they, they can't get it. What's, what's the use of having the medication available, but they, they can't get access to it? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll speak. Um, You'll be the devil's advocate. No, no, just uh, maybe a little cryptically in on this one, but we'll say his name is Chris Morales. That's <laughs> with an M. There's uh, there is, as we all know, and this is actually no secret, but the pharmaceutical industry is a, a crazy money making cow. There's a lot of lot of money flowing through this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just so turns out that it, it doesn't serve a purpose not to give these patients the prescriptions that they need. Uh, and I think it's safe to say that the more of those prescriptions that are given out, and of course, from our angle, you know, it's in the client's best interest and these people need these services but that a lot of money stands to be made on the back end if they can if they can prescribe more people these medications. Mm-hmm. And there uh, was recently a political uh, shift with uh, one so-called election that that we just went through. And um, I don't recall, but go ahead. <laughs> and and I think that big businesses, big pharma being one of them, uh, stand to be in a position where financially lucrative propositions may be voted for I, the eyes will have it, so, so to speak. So let me see if I understand you correctly, <laughs> you and your cynical self, <laughs> that what you believe or what you are saying cryptically is that in some weird way that big pharma through their greediness – will put pressure, will bring pressure to bear, either just outright pressure or pressure via a ballot measure, Mm -hmm. okay, Uh, changing the regulations on the limits of how many patients a doctor can have that's on these medications, et cetera, et cetera, so that it opens the floodgates for them to, for those drugs, quote unquote, to flow more freely. I am simply pointing out an <laughs> an observation that uh, that this may come to pass, and we have uh, a particular political party in power with mm-hmm. a a majority of the seats mm-hmm. and a leader who, uh, yeah, I, I, economics of situations are going to be looked. Yeah, at. I think it'll be a more local state. When I say local, I mean state state measure, state mm-hmm. issue sure. that will uh, change this. And here's the thing. <clears throat> To consider, I will give them the benefit of the doubt that the thinking was by restricting the, the by capping the number of patients a doctor can have mm-hmm. on Vivitrol, Suboxone, um, one that we didn't mention, Naltrexone, um, was an attempt to try and prevent abuse. Okay, yeah, that okay. makes sense. Trying to prevent abuse of those drugs, either through quote-unquote crooked doctors, of which there are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, sure. the, all the scandal that happened in Los Angeles that everybody else is paying the price for, okay? Right. Um, so I, if that was the reason, I get, I get that. 
Um, but as is always the case, you then lurch so far the other way because sure. of that concern that you then put up barriers that what we now call the unintended consequences. Right. So everyone is talking about the the availability of this new you know of of medication assisted treatment and that how beneficial it will be for those who are good candidates for it and that's mm-hmm. key by the way right they really want to make sure that they the people who are using this service are good candidates and and can really benefit from it and now they're finding out slowly but surely, wow, there are a number of people that are in need of this service. There are a number of good candidates. Right. But, wow, not all the doctors that we thought were going to take this course, pass this training, and become eligible are doing it. Very few are. Right. And, and, and like with anything, when you're looking to implement something new on a large scale like this is, or even uh, in your own uh, personal business or life, and it could be with anything. When you look to implement something new, the initial game plan is fine to proceed with caution, and that's totally valid thinking. We don't we don't want this to be a free for all for addicts now to just get high on prescription drugs. And that's, that's why we're not live streaming, <laughs> right? And so the, that thinking of proceed with caution makes sense. Mm-hmm. But what you have to be able to do is once you've implemented this plan and you can now sit back and assess, we call it API Mm -hmm. in uh, the facility that we work in, Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be able to sit back and say, okay, we implemented something new. We put X amount of restrictions on it, and these were the reasons why. Mm -hmm. We've now seen the process unfold, how it's currently working. Uh, Now... Some things are working the way we intended to and the mm-hmm. way we want to keep them going. And then now there are some things that are also amiss that maybe a little tweak, need a little tweak or a little adjustment because it's not reaching this target audience who we believe is a good target audience uh, because of, you know, whatever, one of one of the restriction X that we put on it. And so how can we, we – you begin to fine-tune. Mm-hmm. It's clunky at the beginning, and it's going to be because you can't anticipate everything. Mm-hmm. But now we have to be able to sit back, we being you know, the, the, the policymakers and things of this nature. Uh, how can we fine-tune this? How mm-hmm. can we tweak this to make it um, just, just a better fit, more mm-hmm. accessible to those who we do see now – there are a number of people who we would consider great candidates by our standards who cannot access this, which we want them to be able to access. Right. Now, Traxone is a medication that reverses the effects of opioids and is used primarily in the management of alcohol dependence and opioid dependence. Mm-hmm. Vivitrol is a prescription injectable medicine used to treat alcohol dependence first and also to prevent relapse to opioid dependence. So meaning you have to detox first, get off of them first, and then this prevents uh, relapse. By the way, none of this is 100% like foolproof. doesn't work for everybody, etc. And Suboxone, which is a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, is an opioid. So the buprenorphine is an opioid medication, 
which is the what do we call that uh, dichotomy here so half of it is an opioid medication and the other half is a uh, receptor blocker so so basically you won't feel half of <laughs> yeah right 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 it blocks half of the medication <laughs> yeah funny the way that works exactly we're yeah we're gonna put this into the medicine for you to feel it and then block uh half the way your body can even absorb it so <laughs> to make sure you don't feel it <laughs> right so uh we're joking well yeah we're, we're not chemists we we don't know exactly the uh the inner workings of how that might all break down but funny funny on but, its surface. but those three the marinol which is the medical marijuana and then the methadone which has been around the longest all of those comprise of what is now known as MAT, medication-assisted treatment, um, which is uh, a, a, an existing part of the reality of substance abuse treatment today. And programs have had to adapt um, cultural, culturally yep. within them within the programs, and then uh, intellectually in terms of understanding how it does benefit, how it can be misused, abused, um, how to fit it into your program based on how your program operates. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is going to be, is always going to be an ongoing process because you're dealing with humans, not widgets. That's right. So um, nothing will ever be written in stone in terms of what a policy may be because different people respond differently, behave differently, and of course have different agendas as to why they may be interested. See, it's one thing if we say, based on an assessment and information that we have, that person it will be a good candidate for that. You know, if we say sure. that and then bring it to them and talk to them about it, and they, hey, you know, yeah, I think that will benefit me. Mm-hmm. Versus, which we experience this, where they come in already either on it. Yeah. So you now have to, you're meeting them midstream. You know, where are they at? Where are they at mentally? You know, you know the whole, yeah, they got to review everything from A to Z. Right. To know how you're going to approach the situation. So basically, you got to be flexible. What's that old saying we have? There's nothing constant but change. So we have to deal with it. Very true. Very true. And that's. And like you said, and this is on a much larger scale in working with, with human beings, but that this field is constantly going to evolve like many things. And um, it, it serves anybody who works in this field well to understand that right up front mm-hmm. on its surface and not get too caught into one way of thinking mm-hmm. about you know, w- uh, one solution to a problem. What, what constitutes drug treatment? Mm-hmm. That like there's only one right yeah exactly um because yeah adaptability okay this is this is what's happening this is how it can benefit these will be our challenges as providers mm-hmm. and how can we meet those challenges with taking on the good that can come with this as well mm-hmm. um and being open to that process so before we wrap up we're at the top of the hour you know this reminds me of off topic. You remember when, when we had the adolescent program, there was a period of time, mostly near the end, let's say the last two to three years, sure. where the Department of Social Services was heavy-handed on client rights. 
for the kids. Oh, boy. Everything was about client rights. Let me tell you and what, so, those, those clients had more rights than some of the staff working there. Not, yeah, they, they actually <laughs> had more, more rights. And the because I don't know what generated that as that, that, movement. that flipped their focus to the, everything being geared from that perspective. Yeah. Um, I say I don't know. I, now I remember it was a scandal. It's always a scandal, right, that starts everything. Yes, in indeed. Sacramento, it takes one. There was a scandal in Sacramento with group homes. And, of course, new legislation came down as a result of it, and their focus became – everything became geared towards client rights, clients' rights. Well, you remember the meetings that we used to go to once a month? I sent you to them a couple of times, uh, group home providers meeting. I went, I, I went yeah, several right. times religiously over a span of a year or right. so. So at one of those meetings, one of the local juvenile court judges, she was a long time, long, long time, going back into the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So she, she knows the adolescent world in and out. And we were talking to her about this difficulty we were having with, you know, like yeah, the client's these teenagers, you know, aren't they aren't like the teenagers of yesteryear. They, they come in knowing what their rights are in the program right. and use them to their advantage. And licensing um, cosigns it, so it makes yeah. it very difficult to provide treatment if you're a treatment provider. And just so to give context for our listeners, not all group home providers were treatment providers. Mm-hmm. We were a treatment provider. And the judge said, they don't have no rights. These are, these are quotes. Mm-hmm. So the only right they have is to be housed and fed and clothed. That's it. All that other stuff, they don't have any rights. Now, of course, that was total opposite to the Department of Social Services. Right. Okay. So here we have a judge who is in the a juvenile court judge, right, who actually issues the orders placing the children in the facility. Yeah, right. And you have the licensing division saying, nope, these are their rights. You have to abide by their rights, grant them these rights, mm-hmm. so don't violate their rights, et cetera. But then you have the judge, the court, hell no. <laughs> right. And understanding how in the world can you possibly mentor, lead, teach, and um, appropriately discipline, not capital punishment, of course, appropriately discipline yeah. okay, teenagers to lead them the right way if you are basically handcuffed, handcuffed and they're now running the program. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why we're no longer in the adolescent <laughs> <laughs> dabbling in that field any longer. We're no longer dabbling in that field. And I, I think it goes without saying, but I'll put it out there. And we're not talking about um, like we did not want to give the adolescents tie them up. Their, yeah, <laughs> their rights in some sort of yeah crazy regard. Like you're gonna you don't get dinner tonight yeah. because of whatever. No, that we were talking a long list of like. You know, I can have a personal phone on me at all times and like mm-hmm. stuff that most parents probably wouldn't think twice about letting their young teenager have some of these things that licensing was telling us, oh, no, yeah, they can do any of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it got it got crazy. I think that's it, sir. 
Okay, I'll throw one quick question at you okay. before we close up as we're dealing in the current now and then projecting forward to the future. Mm-hmm. Um, with the passing of certain propositions and measures that all came down in this voting cycle, mm-hmm. um, and we've done a show on the legalization of marijuana, and we've, we've covered it in strict detail, mm-hmm. uh, but projecting forward mm-hmm. 10 years, 5 years, 10 years, mm-hmm. um, do, do you see that at any point, and obviously I'm asking you to um, extrapolate here to a to a large degree and show a lot of potential foresight here, but marijuana coming into treatment facilities like cigarettes do to, to, to this day? First of all, I predicted to my wife that it would pass in California. Okay, one for one. By a, you know, landslide, landslide and it did. Not even close. I also my daughters were my one daughter was present at the time. Um said it means nothing in terms of your conduct because the California Supreme Court has already ruled that just because – and at this time, they were ruling on medical marijuana, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. They, they said just because the state of California allows the use of medical marijuana, okay, and the same will apply just because the state of California – and this has already been adjudicated in other states – just because the state of California allows the use of recreational marijuana, mm-hmm. it is still a, a Schedule One drug. It shouldn't. Shouldn't be. It's just craziness, first of all, sure, to compare right. it to agree. heroin and cocaine and right, stuff like that. Right. It should be on the schedule, but it shouldn't be a schedule one. But as long as it is on the federal schedule of drugs, your employer mm-hmm. can fire you if you have if if you know if they test you for cause or whatever the case may be, government employees or private employees or whatever can just because it's legal. It's no different you showing up to your job your job drunk. drunk. Right. Okay. So and I've already stated publicly, um that question was asked to me at one of our fundraisers oh, by the audience. Yeah. My personal opinion on you know legalization of marijuana or whatever and I said it, it makes no difference to me. Sure. Whether it's legal or not. Just like it makes no difference that alcohol is legal or not. Mm-hmm. I said, if you become addicted to it, we'll treat you. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. If you become addicted to it, we'll treat you. That's my, that's my position. Whether or not it's a good thing for society, well, you, you, you can't be – you have to be very careful. can't be a – should I say it the right way or the way my Sunday school teacher used to say it? Sunday school respecter or him. Hypocrite. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He had a Jamaican accent. So the acts so the, the emphasis was always on the wrong part of the on word. On the wrong <laughs> syllable. Yeah, good. Right? You can't be a hypocrite and talk about, you know, the the re, the real and true uh, you know, pot, you know, things about the gateway of, of of marijuana and where where it can lead. Okay. There are truths to that, no doubt, okay. There are truths to the medical benefits, no doubt, okay, but alcohol is legal, just like they talk about some of the benefits of red wine and so on and so mm-hmm. forth, but it could be abused. Sure, of course. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So makes no difference to me. If you abuse it and you become addicted to it and it starts to impact your behavior and your life and your quality of life, 
We're here for you. We'll help you out. We're here for you. Yeah, there you go. Great. Great topic. Well, we are going to uh, up against the top of the hour here. We're going to take a quick music break. And as always, on the other side, we will come back with our recovery sport time. We do see that we've had some uh, people who called in just to listen. We hope you're enjoying the show to this point. We also see we have some callers on hold who would like to participate in the recovery sport time segment. So enjoy this quick music break, and we will get to you all on the other side. Girl! 
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. part of the show yes indeed i hope we got some good ones lined up i think so we got a lot i don't know we're 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 behind the behind the curve that's is that the expression when you got so much built up you never know if you're going to get get to them ever yeah that's right that's right it's a good problem to have yeah it is yeah that's right that means a lot of participation a lot yeah. of people with a lot of questions out yeah. there yeah. A lot of the same questions sometimes, but that just means, you know, it, those are big issues. Um, Albert from Belmont wants to know, is there any real value of an intervention for an unwilling addict? That is the eternal question. Can someone who does not want to be helped be helped? The sad, unfortunate reality is no. You can't put someone in a headlock. Or like back in the day, the parents dragging their children by the air into the adolescent program. The equivalent of that today is a judge slamming down their gavel and say, I'm um, mandating that you go into a residential treatment program for X amount of months and you have no interest, but you're, you know, faced with that or the prison, you know, you choose the lesser of, in your mind to, to, you know, the better of two choices, let's put it that way. So I always say, I don't care 
what motivates someone to get into treatment, whether it's an external motivation or an internal motivation. I don't care what the motivation is. What I care about is that they get in, they make it in before something bad happens, something life-altering happens. And yes, I include in life-altering getting locked up. And of course, there's death. Um, So if a person makes it into the program, but they're not really interested in recovery, if they don't, for the time that they're here, flip, that doesn't flip, they'll eventually leave on their own. Because they're just not ready. The time is not now. For those who are outside and they're getting external pressure from family and loved ones and friends, etc., it's I, – I don't know. I mean in, in this arena that we're talking about here, Mr. Producer, I don't know of no more helpless feeling than having a family member that is in need of assistance, has a problem, and refusing you know, and, to – and is just unwilling – Mm. Not interested, um, and there's nothing you can do about it. it but but it's tearing, you know, tear, tearing the 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 family apart. And when I say tearing the family apart, I don't mean that the family is coming apart the scenes, but people are just you know emotionally, you know, at their wits' end, and they're they're hoping for some divine intervention, yeah. you know, at some point. But there's nothing you can do until the person makes a decision. It is or a feeling. You, or you might get lucky and and they get involved in the criminal justice system and the decisions sure. made for them and yeah, while they don't have the choice anymore. And while they're there, they become enlightened. And this can happen. Yes, happens we, a lot. We yeah, plenty of stories where someone was mandated to be in treatment but didn't want to and glowing and right. on the other end. Yeah, it's definitely a feeling of hopelessness and helplessness mm-hmm. when you're in that position. Um I use the phrase that uh, you used to hear my parents use all the time on the show before, and I think you liked it, but it's time to drop it again. That saying, that euphemism, if you will, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't get it to drink. Mm -hmm. And that's the same kind of thing. You can want the help for this individual as much as you wanted anything. Line it up, pay for it. Line it up. A&E has made millions of dollars based on that very thing on a show that they call intervention. Exactly. And you got the closest people to this person in their family reading letters, crying, sobbing. You've got the therapist here who's offering you the best treatment available in the country for free. And all you got to do is say yes. Allegedly. Well, (laughs) the sponsors of the show, uh, undoubtedly, but, um, but yeah, no, if that individual in that seat won't do it, Mm -hmm. there's nothing you can do. Yep. Uh, let's see. Bruce wants to know, is there a difference between addiction treatment for men and women? Um, not essentially treatment is not different. The experience no. of the of of the gender while they're in treatment may be different. But but oh, but like the, how the client might report afterwards how they felt. If yeah, you just their experience them. from a man's point of view, a woman's point of view, their experience may be different, but the treatment itself, treatment itself is not different. No, other than well, gender group, you know, we separate them for gender group, but sure, yeah, um, but. As usual, not in, not enough women in treatment. Very underrepresented. Mm, not enough women. Um, 
I think someone asked this before. Do drugs like nicotine and caffeine interfere with the recovery process? Caffeine and nicotine are staples of recovery. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You won't go to a single meeting in in your local area, nor will you walk into any kind of treatment facility without a fresh brewed pot sitting there for you to pour yourself a cup of and uh, cigarette breaks on the structure. Can you believe? <laughs> can you believe this? That two things that. Circa 1988, 1989, 1990. I don't know what happened after that because I, le- I left. But Daytop used to give cigarettes in packs. So, and I'm not just talking hmm. about junk cigarettes. Like what are some junk brands? Camel or you know cheap whatever. Cheap yeah, Virginia Slims. Well, maybe no, they were Marlboro and Newport. Wow. Case and people would come every Sunday up to the you know the senior counsel's office and get their seven packs for Holy the week. Holy smokes, pack and a day I, for I, you! Yeah, and I'd be like, Where, "How would they get?" I, I thought they they were getting them from the Indian reservation, Indian reservations, not too far. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but um, that was it was unbelievable to me. That is, this is treatment. Meaning, I'm saying that like all of these amenities that you were getting, right. The Entenmann cakes, the Hostess cakes for Very snack nice. at night. Very nice. I'm like, wow. It's like staying at a you Holiday Inn Express. I didn't get Entenmann's at home. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. You know, six kids, you know, big family. You know, there was no Entenmann's around here. <laughs> homemade cakes. Right. Know? So, wow. I, I couldn't believe it. That and then when something. I came out here to work in the adolescent program, they gave the I tell you no lie. I remember you telling me this. They gave the kids four cigarettes a day. And I'm like, wait a second. Two things. Number one, they're under 18. (laughs) Right. And I said, that might matter a little bit. They're under 18. No one, I said, how do you, how, how do you get away with doing this? And not too long after that, the county passed an ordinance. You know, there was no smoking allowed on any county-owned property or any property that a county contractor provides services for okay. for the county. Sure. And that's when they stopped. I said, oh, the fact that they were under 18 didn't stop. No, well, no, that's stop not them. a thing. Yeah. And they would get four cigarettes a day. I was like, wow. Yeah, that's something. Uh, not a lot of – But, yet, I mean, to get back to the question, I mean – so I think we're the only residential program left that um, allows smoking. And from what I hear on the street from the intake department is that uh, that's a, a driver. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's a golden ticket, so to speak. <laughs> a marketing driver. There you go. Uh, we're not marketing smoking, so don't get us wrong. I'm not say, we're not saying that. I'm just we saying that. We need to that. start uh... – People, I guess people ask, can I smoke cigarettes there? So the question becomes, Mr. Producer, and you know where, you know where I'm going with this. Oh, boy. You know, our, you know, so, you know, where are we, OCG, uh, you know, are, are we on the right hand of, of the law or the left hand of the law? When I say law, I'm just, that's the only term I can think of right now. But by the fact that we allow people to smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, they don't smoke all day. They they might get by the time the day's over four or five yeah. cigarettes. Yeah, a handful of breaks in there. Yeah. Um, 
So that question has been raised. But, you know, the intake department always argues back because I don't, I'm not a smoker, so I, I always raise the question, you know. Sure. And the yeah. intake department always says back that, hey, you know, that's one of the reasons why they like this program is because, or, yeah. you know, they choose it because they know that if they are smoking. <clears throat> but I think in terms of treating addiction, um, we, we, the county provides tobacco cessation treatment. That's right. As an eight-week program that's available to the treatment providers, and we've had them come in over the years, and which it's time for them to come back in. Um, cigarette is not a mind-altering drug, mm-hmm. mood-altering, and because it's not does not have like negative behavioral traits, like you're not going out there robbing and stealing and doing all kinds right, of stuff. To get right, right. After you right. smoke you a nice cigarette, you're right. not going to hold up the place. Right. Um, it's not an addiction that we focus on as part of treatment. Of course, we want people to stop smoking for your health. Right. Okay. But it's hard if a staff member is sitting there smoking a, a cool 100s. <laughs> <laughs> all right. In the back, you know. But, um, <clears throat> But you never know. It might evolve. Who knows? It's true. I'm just saying. I'll it's never true. forget Eddie Hill at Swan Lake. He wasn't a smoker. And he seemed, he just, by a dictatorial caveat, just said, effective immediately, Swan Lake is, you know, uh, he limited smoking to specific areas on the property. Yeah. I mean, he, like, pigeonholed you into a spot, you know. Okay. And he just he didn't go all the way to an outright ban, but he was like right there. <laughs> he was right he on was the edge right of there. it. He did not like the cigarette smoking. Well, there you have it. For good reason. All right, let's go. Let's hit the phones. We're doing a lot of yapping. It's what we do best. Let's go to Justin from San Mateo. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. How you doing? Good. Very good. Uh, I've got a question for you guys. Uh, all right. How do you maintain resilience? when a tragedy happens to you during recovery, like the tools that you would use? That's a good question. Mr. Producer, you want to start with that? Because I'm going to get something real quick. Yeah, absolutely. Um, To me, I think, you know, resilience obviously is a very powerful and necessary tool for folks who seek to recover from, from drugs and other substances to possess we people have to be resilient in general. It, it's actually more of a life coping tool if you really break it down than anything else because such as life, bad things are going to happen and they're going to happen throughout the duration of anybody's life. And whether you are addicted to substances or not, you're going to need to know how to cope and be resilient and bounce back from tragedies and bad things that, that are going to take place. I think to answer your question specifically... Um, it has a lot to do with your drive, your focus, what it is you're trying to accomplish. I think if there is somebody in recovery who genuinely wants to be clean and sober and wants to make a change, then when something tragic happens, that core motivation that, that, that exists within that individual is going to be the driving force behind making the decision, so to speak, to be resilient under these circumstances, to bounce back, to 
understand it's okay to feel down or feel sad or be affected in a multitude of ways when something tragic happens, but to utilize the tools that are at your disposal um, for anybody in recovery to reach out to other folks that they have within their support network um, to just identify that they're going through something in, in general and speaking to that. But if you're at your core way deep down inside, you, you want to make a change and you want to be clean and sober, then you need to use that as your driver to say, you know what, something tragic happened and I'm in a position where I could easily justify using, but at the same time, that's not something I want to do. So I need to be able to bounce back from this and do whatever that is for me, reaching out, talking to people, journaling, whatever positive, productive things I can look to to try and cope with this tragedy because tragedy is going to happen to all of us at some point. Right, right. Well, I appreciate your time, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Well said, sir. I will add, um, especially if it's a a a, a loss of a, lo- a loved one, mm-hmm. um, that they feel what they feel when they feel it. That's right. And allow allow the body to experience the grieving process and not stuff it. <clears throat> Entirely agree. Yep. All right, let's go to Jason from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So Welcome. my question is, um, how can one determine when they're ready to leave recovery? When you say leave recovery, can you do you do you mean like leave a treatment program or because yeah, re- leave re- like a recovery in a program? program. Okay. Yeah. How can one determine? Yeah, like when do you know exactly that it's time for you to go back into the real world? Combination of factors. Um, have you accomplished? the things on your treatment plan or are you three quarters of the way well, or let's say well on your way to accomplishing the things that you set out to accomplish on your treatment plan. That's usually, that's usually the telltale driver of when a person is ready to move through the, the, the whole process of recovery, not just leaving quote-unquote, the treatment environment, but continuing on in their recovery process. Where are they at with their treatment plan? Have they addressed the issues that they identified at the forefront? Where are they at with that? So have you asked yourself those questions in terms of what you wanted to accomplish when you came, when you started, and where you are currently at in that process in terms of I've accomplished A, I've accomplished B, I've accomplished C, I'm well on my way with D. And so I have this sense within me that I'm I'm ready for whatever my next step, my next challenge is. is. Have you asked yourself those questions? I have asked myself those questions and I've accomplished the goals that I had originally set um, Mm -hmm. when coming into treatment. But Mm -hmm. I feel like during treatment, there ended up during like finding, looking more into my core and figuring out those issues, there ended up becoming more issues I realized I needed to work on. 
Okay. So I just and don't know how am I going to keep finding issues that are, that come up that I need to work on, or is there going to be a point where... So one of the things you have to do is determine whether or not the issues that surface, are they related to core issues, or are they separate and standalone issues? That's number one. And number two, are they big issues that would prevent you from living your life and coping with them as you move forward in the recovery process? Because I have to tell you that as you move through this experience, okay, there's always going to be something. Yeah. Because as a human being, as a human being, being involved with relationships with friends, loved ones, etc., there's always going to be something. There's never not going to be issues. Yeah. There's one thing we got is issues. <laughs> I agree. So you just have All to right, determine well. if you've if you've addressed the core stuff, the drivers, okay, then you kind of know that, hey, I'm ready for my next challenge and ready to progress because there's a uh, there's a negative to a person staying too long in the treatment environment because they start to regress. Yeah. So you try and find that happy medium of time when it's ready, you know, ready for them to move on to the next challenge. Yeah, I agree. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. You are very welcome. Have a nice day. Bye. I don't have to be too anxious, but we've seen it numerous times when, uh, a person has been too long mm-hmm. and they start going backwards. So two things happen. Either they start going backwards or they, you have the person that we, we believe is, you know, okay, time has come. This time has come. Mm-hmm. And they start self-sabotaging. That's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> to avoid facing the reality uh, of. I think I'm going to experience a relapse here <laughs> this weekend. So I have to uh, start over or. Yeah, I think uh, another, and you you touched on this kind of indirectly, but I think a big component of that too is if you're the client in treatment, obviously you've got to advocate for yourself and you know yourself better than anyone else. But that said, you are still in treatment. And so trusting in the process, trusting in the counselor, the therapist that you're working with, um, Nowadays, treatment plans are not dictated by counselors. They're done in concert with clients. Mm-hmm. So these things in your treatment plans are things that were mutually agreed upon that mm-hmm. we need work on. Um, but, but almost kind of we say this in, in recovery all the time, um, and it sounds religious and it's not, but it's just how we look at treatment, but it's just kind of like surrendering to the process. Mm-hmm. And so if you have full faith that you know what this place is good for me it's not going to hurt me i trust uh the counselor that's responsible for me in in this progression that Mm -hmm. i'm making then i need to trust that when i'm ready they will also see that and they will point that out to me and i'm going to leave that into the hands of the professional and just focus on what i need to do day to day as they ask me to do it and when my time comes i'll be told my time is here yeah, there's no incentive to keep someone past 
the time that they're right. Running. Right. Um, there's no incentive to us to keep someone. And there's certainly we, – we have to look out to make sure that there's no incentive to vet from on their side to either want to leave before they're ready mm-hmm. or they want to stay longer. <laughs> <than> they, <laughs> Until they, right after they've been ready, right. Then we want them to. So some we have to push out, like you know, you got to push the birds out the nest. Some got some got to be pushed out the nest. Time to learn how to fly, right? And and some you have to, you know, put the brakes on and say, wait a second, now we still got some issues here that we haven't looked at, mm-hmm. that you haven't touched on, you've avoided them, okay? And unfortunately, sometimes, and this is the reality that we live in, you know, you only get a finite period of time in various modalities mm-hmm. okay and so sometimes you know you got to step down and it and, and the process will continue so you might start the process of just looking at this issue just starting to open up about it and your time in this modality is coming to a close but you're going to pick it up in the next modality where you're going to get a larger block of time and you're going to continue to d- digging deeper and digging into the issue and and hopefully getting to a good space with it. But we want to make sure that it's just like you said, you can walk into a counselor's office and if you have done the honest assessment, both of you all be on the same page. That's right. We'll we'll be meeting in the hallway. I'll be coming to tell you it's time. And you'll be coming to tell me, you know what? I think it's time. Let's set it. Let's set a a date. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But, you know, there are those who enjoy the comforts of OCG, and uh, sometimes we have to put the – push the bird out. It's necessary. That's why parents do it. Necessary for the growth. All right. I'm looking at our X-Files now. I cannot read the name, but it's from Atlanta, Georgia. Should I cut contact with friends if they still drink and I don't? Um, I have never been a counselor that advised people to cut contact with friends unless those friends were not of the in of and in the best interest of you. And your recovery. There's an old saying, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. So the fact that you may have a friend who drinks and they didn't elaborate and they say things say they were drunk or that they just drank, they might drink socially. No, that shouldn't, that shouldn't be part of, that shouldn't be the sole determining factor in whether or not you, you decide that this friend is no longer going to be a part of your circle if they're a person who drinks socially and they're a bank robber, I would expect you to cut them off because I don't think you need to be hanging around with bank robbers. It used to be, unfortunately, pushed back in the day, and it's still, it's still around, okay, that, hey, you got to cut off every single person that you came into contact with, even the store oh. clerk at the bodega who sold you the Lucy's and you know, anyone it. and everyone, and I say, no, you can't do that. You cannot do that. Those who are you know are no good for you, absolutely. Okay. 
but there are, and there, there can be friends that you've had, you know, since you were a child who are not doing the right thing, but it doesn't mean you have to cut them off. It doesn't mean you have to hang with them either. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a balance there. You know what I mean? But you don't have had. to cut them off because then we get into that, that concern about people thinking that they're better than. And oh, that, yeah. And that, wait a second. What about if you can be the vehicle for possibly lifting someone else up? Mm-hmm. Not by hanging out with them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, you're just mm-hmm. by living your life and mm-hmm. them seeing, wow, look at this. Look at the change, you know, mm-hmm. that so and so-and-so looks real happy now. And boy, maybe that's, maybe I ought to give it a shot. Yeah, it used to be pushed very, very, a very hard line in that regard. It could be, oh, you've made a, you've made a new friend and you're of age, you're 21, 22, and you go to the ball game with this new friend you made and they order a beer and, oh, that's it. I'm packing up. Enjoy the game. I got to go. <laughs> Your number's been deleted out of the phone. It was nice knowing you. And, and uh, yeah, essentially, without it being said, it, it kind of pigeonholed you into only hanging out with other people who are also clean and sober. Um, and that's, a, that's just a slippery slope. You can't live your life that way that you have to have boundaries, your own boundaries, and things that you're okay yes. with and things that you're not okay with and, and hold those boundaries. But, um, you also have to be a human, you know, you mm-hmm. have to. Okay. Let's go to who's been holding the longest. Roderick from the, what does it say? The terrible, terrible San Francisco. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Welcome to the show, sir. Hi. How are you doing today? Good. Um, I just have a question about um, spiritual awakening. How would mm-hmm. I, how would I know about if I am going through a spiritual awakening at this present time, since I'm in recovery for about almost two months now? Well, let me ask you this question first. When you use the term spiritual awakening, are you talking spiritual awakening awakening as as it ties to quote unquote a religious experience or are you talking spiritual awakening as it may tie to a holistic change in you? Oh, pretty much the second option, a holistic change in myself. Okay. Yes. You will know, you will know when that has happened before, we always have trouble explaining this, don't we? This, 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 this thing. It's very difficult. It's, how can I describe it? I think the way we described it was is that it is the only way you can describe it as a spiritual experience when you flip internally and have made the decision and the commitment that your old life was no longer going to be a part of your new life moving forward. Okay. And you knew inside when this occurred, and usually when this occurs – you have no need to express it to anyone. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. It's something you feel within. You know, and you, you know what you felt. 
It changes your thinking, your attitude, obviously your behavior moving forward, and your and then your focus because now your focus just becomes on what do I need to do to now make myself better, accomplish my goals, etc. You don't have to worry about the past. You don't have to worry about oh, am I going to relapse? No, because you've had this flip. Okay. So it's like a total transformation of pretty much everything. Your thinking, your 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 yes. Okay. Oh. Sounds great. Hey, I love it, your show. Thank you. And it is great. <laughs> That's why the only way we can describe it is saying it's a, it's it, it's almost a spiritual thing. There's no other way to describe it. Mhm. It's hard to put words to. So but if, you'll if know. If it does happen to me, I'm not supposed to share it, or no, no, no. I didn't say that, and it and there's no if. Mm-hmm. You don't use the term if. When it happens to you, usually when it happens to someone, they don't have a need to share it. Oh. Okay. You know, it's very different when people are talking about, you know, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and yeah, this is, you know, blah blah blah. When that spiritual flip happens within you. That transformation happens within you. You don't. You do not feel a need to tell someone. It's almost between you and the universe. I see. It's like this silent thing. It, but it what will what, what will happen is people will notice a change in you. People will feel and notice a change in you. You don't have to say a word. <laughs> Make sense? Yes, it does. Um, okay. All right. Thank you so much, okay. sir. You're welcome. You, have, you guys have a great night. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. One day we'll come up with a good description yeah, I think the term epiphany has been thrown out there a couple mm-hmm. of times. And to me, that's the, you know, and I don't know if there's any one word that can really encompass that, the, the feeling or the experience, but. I hope the mic didn't just pick up my slurp. <laughs> I picked up a little, at least I heard it in my headphones. Maybe they won't, won't hear it on the show over the airwaves here, but. um, I'm drinking seltzer water, folks. <laughs> the. It, and it's like you've described too. It's like the light switch moment. Mm-hmm. Something, who knows? Something happens, but it comes over you, and a switch is flicked, and you almost know instantly. Like the months leading up, or two months, or three months of all the work and the groups and all this, and it's almost like none of it even matters or mattered, but the switch flicks on, and you just know. Mm-hmm. It's just this, you have this inherent knowledge. Oh man, I'm done. Yeah. I'm doing something. It's something different is happening now. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, and there's no looking back. Mm-hmm. It just, this is the decision I've made. Now it's not to say, you know, the groups that happened before that and that will happen after didn't in some way sit with you in your mind as you're contemplating things that lead to this moment. And then the work that's being done after to ensure that, that decision can be upheld, mm-hmm. but the moment where that decision happens, yeah, like you said, it's like a light switch kind of flicking on. 
goodness gracious, no, because my goodness, I, I was still like, oh, God, morning meeting again? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, no, you'll still be human. <laughs> right, right. I'm not picking on morning meeting, by the way. <clears throat> All right, let's go to uh, Bill from Boulder, Colorado. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, my go Broncos. Is, yeah, Broncos. <laughs> um, my question is, uh, how important do you feel that physical exercise is to recovery? Uh, right up there with emotional, mental, spiritual, you name it. We have five distinct yet overlapping modules that we believe in. Which, which we will not go into. But, uh, but physical is on there. Yes. Uh, your, your physical recovery is just as important as the other aspects of your recovery. Yes. Yeah, I know, so, I know for me that uh, it's, it's very important for my mental health to have good physical health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything yeah. else? Uh, well, I don't. I don't have too much to say about that. I guess. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank stuff. you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye bye. When did I first realize how important the holistic view of recovery was important? You're referring to yourself now. Well. Just the My, question in general. In general, yeah, was when I arrived at Swan Lake. Mm-hmm. Why would they have an Olympic-sized swimming pool? Why would they have a gym? Why would they have this, that, or another? That treatment just wasn't about sitting in a room, at sitting in groups all day long. Why did they have a chap a chapel? Why did they take great care to make sure that your meals were Probably more on the fattening side, but for good reason. But that you had three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And yes, we even had a snack at night like we were toddlers. My wife hates to this day that I got my daughters used to having a nighttime snack. But yes, People come in, especially people that have been out there a long time. How are we doing on time, sir, by the way? Uh, we are good. We've got about five-ish minutes, and you do have one final caller on hold here. But if you can okay. wrap up your story, we can get to the final caller. Okay. So, you know, people have been out there a long time, 15, 20 years, and, and you know, might come in with physical ailments, medical issues. And it's very important that those things get addressed, managed, under control, because it does play a part in their mental well-being, emotional well-being, spiritual well-being. Mm-hmm. So it is important. All right. Let's go to Karina from East Palo Alto. Welcome to the show. Oh, how you doing? Um, my name is Karina, Good. and um, I'm in a program. Okay. I just want to... I just I will today you know I I feel blessed because um I was I was going through some uh, emotional stuff you know like uh leaving my program mm-hmm. 
and I start thinking about um, the goods and bads. You know, I'm a transgender. So um, I start thinking about, like, do you really want to leave your program? Do you, do you really want a good, good life for you or sobriety for you? Or do you want to go up there and uh, start, like, doing bad stuff, you know, and disappoint your family and disappoint myself especially, you know? So um, today I feel happy, you know, because I didn't do that. You know, I, I use my coping mechanism. You know, like, um, talk to your somebody that you really need to talk to and make them and tell them how they feel before you uh, make an action. So um, what I did, you know, um, I just called my therapist, and I told my therapist, you know, I feel like leaving my program, you know. And uh, she told me, like, write in a paper. Why, why, why did you feel like leaving? Because inside of me, like, I mean, it was something that I, I don't know if it's, if, if it's, it's something, like, real powerful, you know, that makes me, like, think like oh you know what you're ready to work you're ready for for uh for work you can work now you know you can feel like uh i mean i was feeling like i can work now like i can let, do me, this. Ask you, let me ask you a question how how long you been using i've been using since i since i was 15 so how many years is that it's been i'm 38 so you've been what is that mr producer you said 13 and then 38 no, I, I, I started using when I was 15, 15? and I'm 38 okay. right now. Yeah, Only I'm 38. 23 years, okay. So you've been using 23 years, and how many have, is this your first attempt at recovery? No, this is, this is my, uh, actually my third one. Okay. So what you have is a frame of reference of yeah. what you should do when you feel the way you felt today. Yeah. Okay, because this is not new to you. No. Which may make it harder, okay? Yeah. So when you say that I felt like leaving, but I was able to use some of my tools and my coping mechanisms to cause me not to make that decision... I want to make sure that you spend time focusing on, hey, what was the underlying cause of me feeling like leaving? Not focusing what? on not focusing on the leaving, but what was driving it. And it's not about wanting to go out and work. That's a clue. Yeah. yeah. It's something it was, deeper but, than that. Yeah. It was because I was like, um, I started like um, getting to like, I've been, like, having these uh, programs and, uh, like, I mean, these meetings and my programs, and I start seeing myself, you know, the way I am, the way I used to be when I was on drugs, you know, and I didn't like it. Yeah, but his, it, well, you're, what you're doing is the classic, you go into a program for a little bit, you start to feel good, look good, sound good, yeah. and, you think, and right. you think you're ready. Yes. And what and what I'm saying is because you now have experience in knowing that that's a classic mistake, okay, yes. that you have to remind yourself that help. No, I did this. I did this two times before. Made yeah. the same mistake, so I have to remember. No, I need to stick to my treatment plan. 
accomplish the goals on my treatment plan, and that will determine when I'm ready. Because you, you're right, you know, because, like, you know, I went through a lot of stuff, you know, when I was um, when I was up there. I, I'm coming from, like, places where um, I was, like, you know, driving myself crazy. You know, I was at the, um, at the hospital, like, going crazy, you know, like, uh, I, you know, like, um, going to, uh, like, San Mateo General Hospital, you know, um, 5150, you know, I was, like, um, like, tied up, you know, in, in, punks, you know, just because I didn't know what I was doing, like, I was so high, you know, that I couldn't even, yeah. Karina, okay, so you're not going to, you're not going to recount all of that. Yeah. We're gonna leave. We're gonna leave you with this because we got we're we're up against the clock. Yeah. I want to leave you with this. Yeah. Okay? Your homework for today is to just focus on what what feelings were I experiencing that were causing me to think about making a decision to leave. Yeah. Identify identify the feelings and then. I want you to call us back on the 29th when we do our next show, and I want you Uh to tell us what you came up with, okay? Okay, thank you. God bless you, okay, and I appreciate it. You're very welcome. You guys take my call. Bye-bye. All right, you're welcome. Bye-bye. That's it. Say your piece. We got to sign off. I got to do what a, a producer's got to do what a producer's got to do to keep us on schedule. All right. Yeah, I know. You're getting ready to give us the axe. <laughs> That's it. I, I don't have anything. I'm, I'm good. Beautiful. Well, as you guys heard, the 29th will be our next show. We would like to wish... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. son of a I gun. He apologize. does it to me every time. I want to apologize that we had to flip <laughs> our schedule this month because of the holidays, and it just moved our... Mess with sure. our timing and all that stuff. So, absolutely. And, and on that note, we would like to wish everybody out there a safe and warm and loving Thanksgiving. Uh, we hope everybody has the holiday that they are expecting and hoping to have. Uh, again, if you do want to listen to a show next week, since we won't be live, we do have the archives that you can dive into. Uh, outside of that, we will be back live on the 29th. We would like to thank everybody out there who continues to give us their ongoing support, all the callers who call in just to listen or to participate in the Recovery Support Time segment. We do appreciate every single one of you. Have a productive couple of weeks, safe couple of weekends, great Thanksgiving, and we will catch you all a couple of days before December.
that's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you gonna let it push you down and make you feel?